Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. You will recall, for those of you who are longtime listeners to this program, that uh, some years ago, Bernie Sanders went over to Denmark, and I believe he also went to Sweden. Uh, it's, it's been, like I said, a lot of years. This was back when uh, Bernie was a regular on our program. And he had meetings with the prime ministers of those countries. And, and uh, in fact, he may have, we may have had one of those prime ministers on our show. We, we did. Yeah, okay, Sean says we did. And uh, Bernie called in and said, okay, I'm in Denmark, and, and let me tell you about this. And we had this conversation about, you know, how does your health system work? And, and how, you know, people are unionized. How does that work? And what's your minimum wage? And, and uh, you know, can people go to college for free and all that kind of stuff? So Bernie was basically arguing that America should learn from the experience of Denmark and Finland, or Denmark and Sweden, I think it was, which, whichever of the countries were, where Bernie was. I know Denmark was one of them. Similarly, Michael Moore made this movie, Where to Invade Next, which, if you haven't seen it, make this one of your commitments to yourself for the 4th of July, because Michael Moore is... You know, one of my heroes, he's a fellow Michigander, he's a brilliant guy, and he made this brilliant movie, Where to Invade Next, where he travels around. The, his, his premise is, you know, when America wants something, it invades a country, right? We, we wanted Iraq's oil, so we invaded Iraq. So where should we invade next? Well, what do we want? Well, how about if we want a national health care system? Let's invade Denmark. What if we want to clean up our prisons and, and go to a, a policing system that actually works? Let's invade Norway. What if we want to have family leave, paid family leave? Let's invade Italy. And he goes around Europe, mostly, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was all Europe. I could be wrong. It's been years since I saw the movie. And interviews average people and interviews politicians and, and, and by way of teaching Americans how other countries work so we can learn those lessons. Well, it turns out Tucker Carlson is doing the same thing over at Fox News. The difference is, instead of going to countries that are highly democratic, small d democratic, that are highly progressive, small p progressive, that are functioning democracies, Tucker Carlson is going to strongman dictatorships. He has embraced and spoken well of Putin and Russia. He has gone to Hungary and did his show from Hungary and had strongman Viktor Orban on his program. And now he's down in Brazil, where he just did an interview with Jair Bolsonaro, another proto-Trump, another right-wing neo-fascist, who is trying, aggressively trying to turn his country into a neo-fascist state. So I'm suggesting that Democrats need to be doing the same. I would love to see, and now, you know, we did our, we've done our show from Denmark, we've done our show from Sweden, we've done our show from Iceland, we've done our show from a bunch of progressive countries and had politicians from those countries on. It all lives on our archives over at TomHartman.com and on our YouTube channel if you want to find them. But I would like to see more of the media doing what Tucker Carlson is doing, only doing it instead of going to, you know, suck up to people like Putin and Bolsonaro and Orban. You know, go and visit countries like Denmark and Sweden and Norway and Germany and France and Spain and Italy and find out what they're doing. Or Canada, if you don't want to fly across the ocean. 
and find out how they're doing what they're doing. How does the Medicare system in Canada work? Let's let's get some of these stories out because Fox News and the you know the oligarchs who own the billionaire oligarchs who own Fox News uh, you know the the Murdoch family are doing everything they can to turn this country into another autocratic neo-fascist regime. We need to be pushing back and pointing out that there are alternatives to turning America into Brazil or Hungary or Russia. I just wanted to play a little clip for you, a little bit of audio here. This is from Fox News, but I want to preface it with an explanation and then I'll pick up your phone calls. I was going to say we're all familiar with abusive husbands. Many of us are absolutely actually not. I've never, well, I've known one couple where I would say the husband was probably abusive. But, you know, we all know the story. And the story is, you know, dad beats up mom, and then mom comes out and makes excuses to the kids about why dad was upset, right? Oh, I shouldn't have upset him. I shouldn't have, you know, served that meal cold, or I put too much salt in the sauce or whatever. And that's why he had to beat me up. In other words, you have the abuser, and then you have the enabler. And this doesn't just happen in homes. This happens in politics. And the abuser in this case is Donald Trump. He abused our nation. And he showed his violence, his tendency toward violence, his love, uh, his, his abusive nature when he threw that plate against the wall and shattered it and ketchup was draining down the wall of the White House dining room that Cassidy Hutchinson testified about. So now come the enablers. This is a clip from Fox News. Buddy, that the president, uh, just you know, knowing what we've seen, observing him over the years, if he got angry, then he might throw his lunch. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I, it's obviously a very dramatic detail, and the way that she describes it um, is. But I'm not sure that any of this is is wholly out of character with the Donald Trump and the President Trump that people came to know over the years. And there's a lot of people out there uh, who obviously shared his feelings of frustration over the course of those days. The problem was that they couldn't back it up with anything in the courts and they couldn't back it up. And with quack, quack, quack. So yeah, Donald Trump is abusive and but we understand, right? We understand. Ay, ay, ay. Dan in uh, Croft Stream, Illinois. Do I have that right? Carol Stream. Oh, Carol Stream. Okay. Missing a letter. Yeah, here. You know what? Uh, long time listener, first time caller, Tom. Thank you. And I just got to say, I really love what you just said. We don't need to add another Supreme Court justice or four more justices to the court to rein in the court. We have the Constitution on our side. The Constitution, third article, second section, second paragraph, they, Congress can limit the jurisdiction of the court. Correct. So uh, we can limit them that they cannot... Uh, it's just never been legislate. done. That's the problem. It's, it's never been done. Uh, but it, and, and when it is done, it will provoke what's called a constitutional crisis. You will have the court going against Congress. But Congress has the power. And, and the executive branch, if they go along with Congress, has the power to execute. Just like, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln exactly. said to the court, screw you. You've, you've been Dred Scott. You said that black people in, in New York State are now enslaved again. We're not going to follow that. Uh, you know, it's, it's Andrew Jack Jackson, when the when the court said, oh, yeah, no, the second the second bank of the United States is just fine. Andrew Jack Jackson said, no, it's not. I'm going to shut it down. Trail of tears. Uh, you know, I mean, there have been th three times that I know of where Congress and the executive branch, specifically, actually, the executive branch, the, the president has defied the court. And I doubt it's going to happen now in this era. I don't think that the Democrats, frankly, have the kind of courage, if that's the right word or willingness to defy that both Lincoln and Jackson had, but I sure would like to see it. Oh, so would I. And I think it'd be a lot simpler because that you're, you're reclaiming your authority as Congress. Yeah. And I think that one of the crises we have going in a society today is we don't think that the Congress can do anything. Well, this would say that they do. They can stand up for people. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank you very much, Dan. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Today we're reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. And this is from the introduction by Sahafia. When I first visited Raqqa Hassan's Facebook page in 2014, I think it's Rakia Hassan, in 2014, I was struck by her profile photo. The Syrian woman had paired a black hijab with a figure-hugging top that was embroidered with gold sequins. Her eyebrows were impeccably groomed, and bronzer contoured her cheekbones. It was a daring look, considering that she lived in Raqqa, the northern Syrian city that was, at the time, controlled by the most brutal Islamist group in the world. Most striking, though, was the defiant expression on Rakia's face, a defiance reflected in each one of her Facebook posts. Everything about the petite woman screamed, I am here and I will not be silenced. Rakia was a Sahafia, a woman journalist, who secretly reported on the crimes of ISIS from inside Raqqa. But she was no ordinary reporter, at least by mainstream media standards. The 31-year-old of Kurdish descent wasn't employed by a major news outlet. She never had a byline or a dateline and was never trained to cover warfare. She hadn't conducted any interviews, and she certainly wasn't impartial. She participated in anti-government protests and openly criticized Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. Online, Rakia was fearless, even though vocal opponents of ISIS were often swiftly executed. The citizens Sahafia wrote in chilling detail under a pen name, Nisan Ibrahim, about the atrocities the group was waging on the people of Raqqa. She shared her reports on Facebook, sometimes posting several times a day. As Rakia amassed a large social media following, her friends advised her to take down the photos of herself that were viewable to the public to protect her identity, but she refused. A philosophy graduate at the University of Aleppo, Rakia was known for the personal, poetic, and somber tone of her social media posts, which were always written in Arabic. She wavered between reporting what she'd witnessed and writing about how she felt. In December 2014, less than a year after ISIS declared Raqqa the capital of its caliphate, she posted the following. In Syria, life and dignity have become two parallel lines that never meet. Rakia mostly referred to ISIS as Daesh, the acronym for al-Dawah al-Islayah, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Greater Syria, which has reportedly drawn the ire of some ISIS commanders as it strips the terror group's label of its reference to Islam. Daesh has closed all internet cafes in the countryside, and most likely in the city too, the citizen Sahafia wrote in June 2015. Without the internet, we will lose our only way of communicating. Dear God, emigration is a loss of dignity and a form of humiliation, while staying here is hell. Dear God, where should we go? What Rakia presented in her harrowing posts was an authentic account of the events unraveling on the ground in Raqqa. Those accounts came at a time when few Westerners could report from within Syria, but they nonetheless commanded the international journalistic narrative on the country from afar. One of Rakia's final posts on Facebook was also her most unsettling. I'm in Raqqa and I've received death threats, she wrote on July 20th, 2015. When ISIS soldiers arrest me and kill me, it will be okay, because while they will cut off my head, I'll still have dignity, which is better than living in humiliation. Shortly after that post, Rakia was abducted by ISIS and never heard from again. In January 2016, her brother received confirmation from the terror group that she had been murdered along with five other women. At the time of this writing, Rakia's body has not been returned to her family. Well before Rakia was killed, I wondered what her story was. Why did she turn to writing and citizen journalism, despite knowing that death would be a very likely outcome of her outspokenness? Why did she choose the pen name Nisan, which means April in Arabic? How did she reconcile the identity she presented online with what was expected of her at home or by the society she lived in? Much like Rakia, scores of women in or from the Arab world and broader Middle East have quietly and courageously risked their lives to write about the coming apart of their region. These women are fierce reporters who have helped shape the narratives of perhaps the most important moments in their homeland's modern history, a time of failed revolutions and violent warfare, widespread political and social upheaval, and the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. And yet, despite their access, expertise, and the obstacles they must overcome in order to do their jobs, they haven't received as much attention as their Western and often white male peers. Our Women on the Ground, this book, presents intimate and rarely heard accounts of what it's like for a woman to report on a region she hails from. The stories of the 19 Sahafiat, whose essays make up this collection, are crucial not only because they have contributed to our understanding of what is transpiring in some of the most dangerous countries and protracted conflicts in the world, but also because they intrepidly crush stereotypes of what it means to be an Arab or Middle Eastern woman today, especially in the era of U.S. President Donald Trump, the rise of populism, and the far right in Europe and elsewhere, and ISIS. Arab women are often misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. 
She's occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat than her male peers or not taken seriously, and she is sometimes actively silenced or passively unheard. This anthology is, in part, an effort to disrupt such flimsy stereotypes. The Sahafiyat come from different generations, faiths, and nationalities, reflecting the diversity of an entire region. They are writers, reporters, broadcast journalists, and photojournalists. Our Women on the Ground is the book. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So let's continue our conversations about the news of the day. There's an awful lot going on. Ferris in Hollywood, California. Hey, Ferris, what's on your mind today? I appreciate your format, especially. I like the noises you're making, you're, but your format is exceptionally good. And as you uh, provide your listeners the, the courtesy of playing things in real time as you're talking about them, things like from the ladies on uh, the Foxes on Fox News Channel, when they say something, you play it. And that's very helpful. Uh, just a quick credential before I go. I'm the world's uh, number one. The point I want to make has to do with the 19th Amendment. Thank you. But I'm the world's number one most frequently heard and most widely heard caller broadcaster in talk radio and talk shows. See, so you're, you're a chronic talk show caller. Uh, I am world's number one most widely heard and most frequently heard. Not the best. I'll tell you who the best is. It's uh, Kim from Norcon, Connecticut. Okay. But I am the most frequently heard, the most widely heard. All right, heard. so Ferris, what, why you, what, is, what did you call about today other than to <laughs> claim your bragging uh, rights? No, don't take it that way. I'm an Army intelligence officer, highly educated, highly informed. I'm not, and I, I'm not, I didn't mean it to, to diminish you at, at all. I, no, I, that's you know, fine. I, I honor that. I, I, a, a good friend of mine became a talk show host by being a regular caller. Um, but sure. But uh, Lionel, uh, you know, he's... Yeah, sure. Now, what I wanted to point out is ask to, you to play for your listeners. Give them the courtesy of, uh, of Rush Limbaugh's uh, broadcast uh, briefly, uh, part of it on seven three twelve. Repeat July three twelve, in which he explained clearly why it all started to go downhill when women got the right to vote. And that's a, 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 a fact that most of us conservatives, including many, many, many women, understand, including led by Ann Coulter on the female side. But Limbaugh explained, and if you Google the two following words, Limbaugh suffrage, all you listeners out there, Google Limbaugh suffrage and hear a very clear and concise, as Limbaugh was wont to do. Uh, so uh, you're, was, you're, uh, you're arguing, Ferris, that women should not be allowed to vote, that we should repeal the no, 19th Amendment. No, here's what I'm arguing. I, I'm arguing that you're an outstanding host and that you should play for your listeners in his own voice. So you Google it up and you play it for your yeah, listeners. Okay, Ferris, thanks a lot. I, uh, frankly, I don't need advice on how to run the show. Um, uh, Tim in Jackson, Wyoming. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I'm going to watch that Michael Moore documentary. On that oh, it is brilliant. Um, Where to Invade Next. I, it is so worth watching. I can't wait. And along those lines, you know, I'm in Wyoming and I haven't been here long, but when you talk about, 
heard you talk about, you know, the Republican idea that they basically went into these low populated rural states, bought up all the media for, you know, a couple of decades now and have been shoving propaganda down their throats for the last 40 years. You know, Wyoming is the least populated state in the country. I have not been here long, but there is outdoor recreation like you wouldn't believe. And on top of it, there's no state income tax. So my argument, well, my my idea, I guess, would be we need some liberal or progressive companies to come in. Look, Wyoming only has 569,000 people, something like that. In the last election, there were only 100, according to Wikipedia, in the last election, there were only 196,000 registered Republicans. 196,000. That's a small town. You know, Mm -hmm. so... Let's invade Wyoming. They, these, these, I'm with you, Tim. It was, in the, it was in the 70s, in the late 70s, early 80s, that the Republicans put together this program to target low-population states. I'd have to go back and look to see if Wyoming was one of them, but I'm sure it was. But states that were, by and large, Democratic states. Certainly, Iowa was one of them. There was, there was a number of states that were consistently voting Democratic. And in states like Wyoming, media is really cheap. You can buy advertising really cheap. You can buy radio stations really cheap. You can buy television stations. Yeah, you know, I mean, you've got a bunch of right-wing stations on the air there in, in Wyoming. Some progressive needs to buy some radio stations, particularly in the, in, you've got two big cities, right? Cheyenne and what's the other one? Rawlings? Laramie, maybe? Laramie, yeah, thank you. And, you know, pick up a couple of radio stations. Start flipping the state blue. I mean, you know, it's, people respond to the data that they get. You know, and if the only data right. that they're getting is, is supporting a right-wing point of view, uh, surprise, surprise, you get a red state. When, and not only that, I mean, let's get some progressive companies to come out here, set up some warehouses somewhere. I mean, you, you know, all the, all, the, all the people in California, that, that the cost of living's just gone through the roof. Hey, you guys can come out here. You don't, we don't have any state income tax, and we've got plenty of outdoor recreation. Get some progressive companies yep. to get some people to move out here. And housing is and, not uh, that expensive. Actually, it, and it's not, right, yeah. right. So, yeah, no, it's anyway, a, uh, let's invade Wyoming. That's <laughs> there you go. Okay, Tim, thanks a lot for the call, and thanks, thanks for listening <laughs> thanks, to the program sir. on Sirius XM. Alvin in Chicago. Hey, Alvin, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing today? Love your show. Thank you, Alvin. The reason I'm calling is, okay, the, the Republican Party, I'm, I'm 61 year, years old, and since the 80s, since Warren Reagan, they have the same game plan. They haven't changed their game plan. They'll tell the Democrats, we're about to hit you in the mouth. But then the Democrats act shocked when they get hit in the mouth. Yeah, I know. I'm with and you. And they have no strong plan. Now, uh, I work, yeah, I can't, well, I can't tell where I work. But anyway, I work with a, young, a lot of young people, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And I tell you, and I'm, I'm more liberal than a lot of them, you know, because I'm for what we need, health care, uh, free college education. I say, you all need to get out and vote. You all need to change this. Yeah. You know, but and then, OK, you let these and I, I'm not saying, OK, okay well, I'll say it like this. I consider myself older. And, and so you let old people dictate what's going to happen in this country. Mm-hmm. And I said, because um, it was told to me sometimes sometimes we stay we stay in these positions too long. We don't give the youth a chance. Yeah. And it's time for blood in, in the Democrat Party because uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, as far as I'm concerned, they need to go. They don't fight hard enough. Well, I think Nancy has done a hell of a job, and she is a fighter, but I'm with you on Schumer. She is. I, I agree. She is a fighter, definitely more so than She's Schumer. gotten a lot done. You know, the, the archbishop in San Francisco said, oh, you're in favor of abortion. I'm not going to give you communion. She hops on a plane and goes to Rome and hangs out with the pope and gets communion in the, in the Vatican. Well, you're right. I did see that. But, <laughs> That's but, a woman but, who's but, kicking ass. People like Chuck Schumer need to go. And so uh, you want to recall his mention about when President Obama was in office. We did have a supermajority. And I know I love Obama, but he didn't do enough because you had the opportunity to do things. Well, he had, he, had a, he had a he has sort of had a supermajority. I mean, he had 58 votes plus two independents, Joe Lieberman and Bernie Sanders. And Lieberman was not I mean, Lieberman was a sellout. Lieberman took over a million dollars from the insurance industry, and, and then he was the vote that sabotaged the public option, which would have, you know, opened the door for Medicare for all. Uh, I, so, you know, and, and he only had that supermajority for 70 days, and during that time he passed the Affordable Care Act, which is a huge deal. So, I, I agree that part, but, you know, the thing about it, I wish the Democrats stopped trying to sing Kumbaya. Yeah, it's not going to happen. No, it's time. Yeah. To, it, 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 we are. This is war. You know, we are at a point. We are in a time where we have uh, we have. Uh, uh, well, uh, I was going to say 
we need to declare war. The Republican Party declared war on America in 1980. Yes. With uh, you know right. the Reagan Revolution. I mean, you know, you just it, that's that's the way it is. Alvin, thank you, thank you, very very well said. Mark in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. Pleasure. I wanted to call and point out that a lot of times when we put forth common sense arguments, they're immediately shut down by especially conservatives on the other side. And so I feel that we need to frame it in a way that they can empathize with and understand, because I have a feeling that a lot of conservatives actually agree with some of our points. They just don't know it because they're blinded. They got their blinders on. And so what I've tried to do is to to phrase it in a way that they can understand and grasp and realize what's really at stake here. And mainly I'm talking about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which is, while primarily it is about abortion and abortion rights, the crew of the issue is religious freedoms and your freedom of religion and If you phrase it like this, they have no choice but to understand it. Say you have a a Christian, a Muslim, and a Jew that all go out for lunch. Now, this might sound like there's a punchline coming, but this is no joke. If the Christian orders a, a bacon double cheeseburger and goes down to eat, but then both the Jew and the Muslim say, well, no, you, you can't have that. You can't eat that because my religion dictates that I can't eat pork. Well, now that sounds insane, of course, because what right do they have to imply or force their religious views on someone else who doesn't share that same religion. And that's the issue that the Supreme Court is just glossing over by allowing their religious views to be forced on other people through the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So the, the final point would be, if you, as a conservative in America, don't like the thought of, uh, of someone else's religious law being imposed on you, whether it's a, a Jewish law or a Sharia law or any religion, you, you name it, if you don't want to live your life in America by their religious rules, then by default, you agree with us in saying that we shouldn't have to live by Christian rules. Yeah, uh, it's a good point, Mark. And, and obviously the court is applying their, uh, their religious perspective here in, Ro- in, this, uh, in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. It, it however, it is even far more dangerous than that because they are uh, denying essentially the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution which says that just because we haven't named specific rights in this Constitution doesn't mean that people don't have rights. And and that came out of a a huge debate between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Um, Jefferson insisted that he would blow up the Constitution. He, He had considerable influence over the Virginia delegation, even though he was living in Paris at the time this was being written. He was our envoy to France. Um, he had considerable uh, power and influence over the Virginia delegation, and he said he would stop the Virginia delegation from ratifying the Constitution, which would have ended the whole Constitution if James Madison would not include a Bill of Rights in it. And so Madison went along with this, but Alexander Hamilton came out, and he actually makes this argument in one of the Federalist Papers. It's in the 50s or 60s. I don't remember which one it is. Um, but Hamilton actually makes this argument. He's, he's trying to take on Jefferson, where he says that if we start naming individual rights, like the First Amendment, your right to free speech, or the Fourth Amendment, your right to privacy, if we start naming these individual rights, future Americans who don't see the world the way we do may assume that these are the only rights that are protected. And in response to that, they put the Ninth Amendment into the Constitution. And, uh, and, and the Ninth Amendment, because, I mean, you know, there's no, there's no, like, right to drive a car. There's no right to go from state to state. There's no right to, to get married. There's no right to, to eat food. There's no right to grow a garden in your backyard. You know, none of these things are laid out in the Bill of Rights. So we have the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution, which says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. And so what the, you know, what the Supreme Court did with Roe, well, actually they did it with, uh, with Griswold back in the 60s, was they said, we are finding in the first, the fourth, the fifth, and the Ninth Amendment, and they're including the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment, and, but they're including the Ninth Amendment in that was that 
you know, this might have been just a kind of common law right, a right that everybody acknowledged. We are finding a right to privacy, individual, personal, bodily autonomy. You may do with your body what you want. You may do with your life what you want, as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of other people. And therefore, in Griswold, you may have birth control in your home. Therefore, in Loving v. Virginia, you may marry somebody of a different race. Therefore, in Lawrence v. Texas, you may have sex with somebody who is the same gender you are. Uh, therefore, in o uh, Obergefell, you may marry somebody who is the same gender you are. Because we have recognized this right of privacy, and therefore, in Roe v. Wade, if you're if, if you're pregnant, you, or if, if you're pregnant, you may end that you may terminate that pregnancy as long as it's not viable, as long as it's not a baby, as long as it's a zygote or a fetus, and and you know it's pretty straightforward stuff. But what the court did is they didn't just end the right to abortion at the federal level in the United States. They also established, they, they also basically struck down the foundation on which all those other rights that the court has recognized in those four other decisions that I just laid out, or maybe five other decisions that I just laid out. They, so all of those decisions, as Justice Thomas said in his dissent, and he's the author of this decision, or no, he was the author of the gun decision. Anyhow, what, what Thomas said in his, Alito was the author of this decision. What D Thomas said in his dissent was, now we've got to look at Lawrence. And, and he said everything except loving. And of course, he didn't mention loving because he's, he's married to a, a white woman and he's black. Exactly. Um, you know, which is pretty cynical. I mean, you know, it's just, it, and, 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 and fairly hypocritical, frankly. So, you know, here we go. Uh, it's off to the races. Next year, this Supreme Court is going to, you know, I predict that by this time next year, there will no longer be a federal right to, to gay marriage. There will no longer be a federal right to contraception. There will no longer yep, be a, a federal right to have sex with whoever you want as long as they're a consenting adult. I mean, you know, it's just this is the direction that we're going. And frankly, I think that there are a lot of people, a lot of people who are cheering on the court right now who are going to, it's going to start dawning on them that this is not the world they thought, or the America that they thought it was, and it's ultimately going to get very hostile to them. Mark, thank you for the call. Excellent points all. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. Hi, it's Tom Hartman Book Club, and today we're reading from What Would Jefferson Do? And this is from the chapter Warlords, Theocrats, and Autocrats, Aristocrats Rise Again, the subchapter Theocrats Attack Democracy. And the uh, epigraph that we started the chapter with is from President Abraham Lincoln where he said, I am approached with the most opposite opinions and advice and by men who are equally certain that they represent the divine will. I hope it will not be irreverent of me to say that if it is probable that God would reveal his will on such a point so connected with my duty, it might be supposed he would reveal it directly to me. <laughs> so the subhead of the chapter, America is a Christian nation. No, it's a nation where a lot of Christians live. And I read about Judge Moore and his Ten Commandments thing and his statement that, you know, America was founded in Christianity and, and then proceed to share the founder's actual view on this. Our founders were both well-schooled in the history of the Crusades and knew from firsthand experience with Puritanism how oppressive religious men could be even with small amounts of political power. Ben Franklin fled Boston when he was a teenager in part to escape the oppressive environment created by politically powerful preachers. And for the rest of his life, he was openly hostile to the idea of a secular power being wielded by those who hold also religious power. Although he was fascinated by the spiritual experience, Franklin had little use for the organized religions of his day. In his autobiographical Toward the Mystery, he wrote, quote, I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies, end quote. In his autobiography, Franklin talks about how he came to this way of thinking, quote, 
My parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously dissenting in the Puritan way. But I was scarce 15 when, after doubting by turns of several points, as I found them disputed in the different books I read, I began to doubt of revelation itself. Some books against deism fell into my hands. They were said to be the substance of sermons preached at Boyle's lectures. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them. For the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to me much stronger than the refutations, and I soon became a thorough deist." End of quote. Franklin, like most of the more well-known founders, was a deist, subscribing to a philosophy made popular by Unitarians who held that the Creator made the universe long ago and has since chosen not to interfere in any way, excuse me, that neither Jesus nor anybody else was divine, or alternatively, that we are all divine, and that there is only one God and not three. Another founding deist who resisted giving political power to those with religious power was George Washington. Jefferson's diary entry for February 1st, 1799 reads, quote, when the clergy addressed General Washington on his departure from the government, it was observed in their consultation that he had never, on any occasion, said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion. And they thought that they should so pen their address as to force him at length to declare fidelity, whether he was a Christian or not. They did so. However, Jefferson noted, the old fox was too cunning for them. He answered every article of their address, particularly except that which he passed over without even notice. Jefferson concluded that Washington, quote, never did say a word on the subject in any of his public papers, and that Governor Morris, a close friend of Washington's, has often told me that General Washington believed no more in that Christian system than he himself did, than Governor Morris did, end of quote, from Jefferson. In fact, President George Washington supervised the language of a treaty with African Muslims that explicitly stated that the United States was a secular nation. The treaty with Tripoli worked out under Washington's guidance and then signed into law the next year by John Adams in 1797, reads, quote, as the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the law's religion or tranquility of Muslims, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Muslim nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries, end of quote. But for the founders, this wasn't just an issue of being Christian or not. They didn't want any organized religion mixing its functions with government. For example, on February 21st, 1811, President James Madison vetoed a bill passed by Congress that authorized government payments to a church in Washington, D.C. to help the poor. Faith-based initiatives were a clear violation, in Madison's mind, of the First Amendment doctrine of separation of church and state, and could lead to a dangerous transfer of political power to religious leaders. Caring for the poor was a public and civic duty, a function of government, and should not be allowed to become a hole through which churches could reach and seize political power or the taxpayer's purse. Funding a church to provide for the poor would establish, in Madison's words, a legal agency, a legal precedent, it would break down the walls of separation the founders had put between church and states to protect Americans from religious zealots gaining political power. Thus, Madison said in his veto message to Congress, he was striking down the proposed law because it helped a church to, quote, provide for the support of the poor and the education of poor children of the same, which, Madison warned, would be a precedent for giving to religious societies. That would be giving federal funds. Now, uh, Things have certainly changed since then with the faith-based initiative program that started under Reagan has now exploded. But anyhow, the book is What Would Jefferson Do? Jim in Hillsboro, Oregon. Hey, Jim. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Hey, Supreme Court is on my mind. Yeah, you and the rest of the world, I think. I tell you, I feel like I've just been beat up. You know, left hook, mm -hmm. right jab, uh, yep. you know, hey, make her to the breadbasket. That's, wow. I'm with you. Um, you know, it, it, it just, I can just imagine <clears throat> a, a dystopian vision where the executive just, you know, gives up, abdicates, Congress goes on vacation, and the Supreme Court just rules the land. Nine unelected folks. Mm -hmm. so, so here's the deal, full disclosure. I took a challenge a couple of years ago. I got involved with the um, Democratic Party here in Washington County, it was PCP. And uh, I'm on my third term. 
So you're a precinct committee person. I am. Good on you, Jim. So tell me about it. No, I think that was a very, a very good advice, and I thank you for it. You're welcome. How's it working um, out? Yeah, oh, it's working out pretty well. But you know, I always hear this, this, this talk about the Republicans misusing the word Democrat. You know, it's a noun. They, they wanted to make it something else. I think it ought to be a verb. Democratic, so, you mean? No, Democrat. Use it as a verb. Because the other day, now I've got a volunteer gig, too. So you know, Give me an example in a sentence. I will. Okay. The other day, I went out to my volunteer gig, and I said, Dear, I'm off to go Democrat. We have a lot of work to do, and it's going to take a lot of Democrating to get it done. There you go. Okay. I like it. So that's my take on things. Just a little levity, maybe, in, the, in this crazy world of hurt. Great one. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Uh, Lafayette in uh, Horta Militia, California. Am I saying that right? That's right, Tom. And, you know, your show is the island of rationality in a sea of ideological insanity. Well, thank you. Thank you. We try. I like to say there's a whole lot of treason going on. And I'm going to I'm going to rule under the Fifth Amendment as a court of militia that the any of the judicial appointments of a traitor, their jurisdiction is a nullity and doesn't count. And thank God we have dissenting opinions because the dissenting opinions, you could you could make a book out of it because this is the first president to commit treason. Nixon and Reagan did, too. You could throw out their judicial appointments and look at what the real law of the real America would be. Mm hmm. And, for example? Well, any of the decisions, the judges that were appointed by a treasonous, like Nixon, I learned that from your show, that Nixon committed treason. I knew Reagan was doing it in Iran. Oh, yeah. Well, so why, why, it's poison fruit. I mean, like, police can't use evidence. Oh, I see what you're saying. Illegal. I get what yeah. you're saying, yeah. It's a crime. It shouldn't yeah. be. The problem is they're already sworn in. It shouldn't be the result of a crime. Yeah, but they're already sworn in. I, 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 I share your sentiment, Lafayette, and, and, and agree with it, you know, sentimentally, as it were. But legally, I, there's not a chance, uh, unfortunately. Thanks a lot for the call. And welcome back. Kendall in Oakland, California says here, you disagree with me, Kendall. My apologies for not putting you on immediately. I didn't catch that until just now. I see you've been on hold for eight minutes. My apologies. What's up? No, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think you are going to expand the Supreme Court. My question is, how are you going to prevent us Republicans from doing the exact same thing? And it goes back and forth until eventually every living human being in the United States is on the Supreme Court. Well, I'm sure what, you have a plan for that. Sure. What you're laying out is the slippery slope argument. And the slippery slope argument is usually BS. Usually you start out with something that, you know, is well-intentioned and, and yes, you can extend it. You know, like, hey, you know, let's give everybody Social Security. This was the argument the Republicans made back in 1935 when they were fighting Social Security. Well, if you start giving people checks, what's going to stop those people from voting for more and more money until finally you bankrupt the entire country? And what, happens, what happened, isn't it? Well, no, it's not what happened. What, what happens is with the slippery slope argument that there is this middle ground of, of a moment of rationality. You know, you start out going down a particular road that could end up in a bad place, as you just described, or as I just described with Social Security. And then you hit the point where the, the solution is actually working and there's a broad consensus that it's working and it pretty much stays there. Uh, I, I, I've got a hypothetical question for you. Um, there, there's been all kinds of threats to members of the court. Well, let's say, heaven forbid, that uh, multiple Supreme Court members get assassinated, and uh, you know Biden would be able to fill those seats, and you'd be you'd have control of the courts. Would you be in favor of pardoning whoever assassinated those Supreme Court that justices? Is, that is that, insane you know, question, that happen? Kendall. That is an absolutely. I, I'm going to cut you off at that point. I mean, that just it, even talking about that is insane. Um, almost as insane as saying that everybody in America is going to end up on the Supreme Court. The simple reality is, yes, there have been there have been threats. There have been two. The first was two years ago when a man went to a federal judge. Her son opened the front door. He pulled out a gun and he shot him right between the eyes, killed him, killed her son. The police came. She barricaded herself in the house. He wasn't able to get to her. Uh, they, they came, they arrested him. And when they arrested him, they found that he had 
uh, detailed uh, all the details of Sonia Sotomayor, where she lived, and a, an explicit and detailed plan. He had been casing her house. He was going to assassinate her next. Immediately, Congress, uh, in the House of Representatives, they passed legislation to provide some protection to Sotomayor and the other members of the Supreme Court. This is two years ago. But when it went to the Senate, Rand Paul put a, put a hold on it. He blocked it. And so, because it was just a liberal member of the court who was being threatened with death, the Republicans refused to go along with doing anything. Then, a couple of months ago, a schizophrenic guy, a mentally ill fellow, drove to Washington, D.C. with some guns in the back of his car and gets near uh, Brett Kavanaugh's house. And then he calls the police and he says, I'm hearing voices in my head telling me to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh. I'm at the corner of uh, J and 19th or whatever, wherever he was. And the police come over he's, and he's like, I need help. The police come over. They arrest him. They, he's undergoing psychiatric evaluation as we speak. They take away his guns. He never got to Kavanaugh's house. Um, you know, whether he was a, a real threat or not is problematic. But because it was a right-wing Supreme Court justice, within two days, the Republicans had pushed through that same legislation that the Republicans were blocking when it was just a liberal Supreme Court justice being threatened. So, you know, uh, sad, but if we have to talk about, and you, you brought up the subject, you know, uh, threats against the Supreme Court, that's all, to the best of my knowledge, those are the only two threats that there have been. Um, but the fact that there is razor wire around the court right now should tell you something. When a government agency has to surround its building with razor wire, you know, it just like, you know, Donald Trump did the same thing with the White House when he was there. Now, the, you know, the, the, most of those barricades are down now, but I mean, it's just, it's a sign of a failing democracy, frankly. Lee in Sepulveda, California. Hey, Lee, what's on your mind? What's on my mind is your conversation about fascism, and I'd like to say where it came from. It came from the original compromises to first the Declaration of Independence and then to the Constitution, but especially to uh, Madison's Bill of Rights. Those compromises are what have led us to fascism. And I'd like to say another thing, since you've been quoting you and others have been quoting Jefferson, he said... The greatest good we can do our country is to heal our party divisions. Now, if we made public those compromises, if we educated our nation as to those compromises and see what they have done. Well, there were two, there were two we things that when Jefferson was in France, he, he wrote a letter to Madison and said, these must be in the Bill of Rights. One that never yeah. made it to the Bill of Rights. One was that there's no standing army during time of peace. And the other yep. was that corporations may not have uh, monopolies. You know, that, that corporations, that there, there may not be monopolies in commerce, was his phrase. And both yeah. of those <laughs> never made it into the Bill of Rights. And had they made it into the Bill of Rights, I think it, we'd be in a very different world, Lee. Uh, they did, they did kind of compromise on Jefferson's demand that there not be a standing army during time of peace. That's why Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says that Congress can only appropriate money for the army for a two-year period. Every two years since the founding of the Republic, Congress has had to decide whether we want to continue to have an army. We'll be right back. Dan in Oxford, Alabama. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today? Yeah, good afternoon, Tom. How are you? I'm well. What's up? Um, Tom, after what you have seen on the January 6th hearings so far, do you personally think that Donald Trump is guilty of treason? I think he's guilty of sedition. Uh, treason, if you want to get technical, treason requires you to be at war. And uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's basically aligning yourself with the enemy during times of war. Uh, attempting to overthrow your government is sedition. So I, I, I would say he's guilty of sedition. I, I, I have okay. no problem calling it treason, Dan. <laughs> you know, I think it's morally treason. No, no I, I agree. I'm a former Marine, a Vietnam veteran, and that, to me it's treason. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I will tell you this. You know, living in the South uh, as a Democrat, you know, in a red state, deeply red, 
I have found a way to shut the right wingers up about Donald Trump, and hmm. I can do it without without mentioning a name. Okay. This is what I tell them. This is what I tell them. I took an oath in 1967 as a United States Marine to uphold the Constitution and the democracy of this country. Uh, under no circumstances, uh, you know, I took that oath to defend our Constitution and against all enemies, both domestic and foreign. And I usually highlight the word domestic. Mm -hmm. And I tell them I will not support a traitor to this country for any public office. But I don't mention any names. They shut up and they will not say a thing back to me. Because they know. Yeah, yeah, they know. They don't, wanna, they, know. they don't want to accept it. Yep, but they, they know don't want to accept on. it. Yeah, Dan. But they know what they're, they're beginning. They're beginning to see what's going on. I think. Yeah, yeah, I get it, Dan. That's brilliant. Yeah, Dan, thanks so much for sharing that story with us and uh, and for the conversation and for watching us on Free Speech TV down there in Oxford, Alabama. I do appreciate it. Uh, James in Portland, Oregon. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. So, uh, got a question. Um, Chris Hayes, MSNBC, brought this point up, and I'd like to get your opinion. Now, uh, Meadows had some kind of encryption phone or something that he was contacting the war room. He was using, uh, he was using I think he was using Telegram. He was using one of those encrypted uh, messaging apps. Now, if they could tap in and get that message, he's talking to the, in the, in the war room with the Proud Boys there? Yeah. And Giuliani was there. And the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, mm -hmm. is that right? Uh, that's my understanding, okay. yeah. Okay, you got a direct connection from Meadows contacting them, and Meadows is working for Trump. Right. So, and these guys are... Well, and Trump had hosted these guys in the White House just a few weeks before. Well, and they're, and they're getting, they're uh, pleading guilty, half these guys. This is going to be... This is probably going to be the last uh, of the, you know, when the January 6th hearings, there's, there's, I think, three or four more to come. And this is this, this is probably going to be the topic of one of the last ones, James, because it's going to be the nail in the coffin. But I'm with yeah, you. This, this, is, this is very, yeah. very clear proof, uh, it, if it all pans out, that Donald Trump was planning to violently overthrow the government of the United States. And if that's not treason, uh, it's at least sedition, and that is a 20-year felony. James, thank you for the call. We'll be right back. Mary in Long Beach, Washington. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hi, John. I have a couple thoughts in my mind, and perhaps I'm simple-minded because I like things down to the very basic stuff. On Jefferson's memorial, it says something or other to the effect, he swore eternal hostility against every form of tyranny opposed upon the mind of man. That's one idea. I got two more. The other is that no one can faithfully serve two masters at the same time. And then the third one is that the Venn diagram of Christian values and the values of democracy are not a circle. And when we come to where they are not, you know, overlapping, we have to let the secular government uh, make the definitions of what applies to the law of, of people, and it has to be determined by the people the way I see it. So taking those three things, what I'm saying is we shouldn't even pass any laws about abortion because we cannot define through science or law or religion the word for the beginning of life. If we can't define the bidding of life, there will never be any law that we can pass that will bring peace to everybody. It shouldn't. You're even not going to find a consensus on this, Mary. I mean, you've got you've got different religions that are defining when life begins in different ways, and then you've got secular people defining that. But uh, to your Jefferson yeah. quote, uh, may I uh, enlighten you a little bit about where that quote came from, where he said, I've sworn eternal hostility. I've sworn upon the altar of God, eternal hostility against every I form. I read your Oh, you did. OK. So you know that that came out of his letter in which he's, he, he was talking about the preachers. 
he, he was yeah. saying that the church was the tyranny that he was specifically standing up against. Yeah, uh, Mary, I, I get your point, and and I think that you know defining the beginning of life is is you know I mean there are there are biological arguments to be made, but I think at the end of the day it's really a, a religious argument, and that's just but something that we're never going to resolve. Well, that's my point. That's why it shouldn't even be debated as a law for Congress to pass. Doctors oh, I agree. Medicine. Yeah. And preachers should teach religion, and government should pass laws according to the will of the people. And when, because they, when it comes to defining the beginning of life, none of the three overlap. So if they want to regulate abortion, do it through the medical community, and through the population, the preachers can preach, and the doctors pass practice medicine and the democracy passes laws according to the will of the people and abortion should never come up because it's private. Yeah, well, there's two layers to this, Mary, as I'm sure you know. Uh, one is the religious layer, but the other is just the desire on the part of many people to control women. You know, to, well, to, that's true too. You know, and, and the, I, you know, I, I would just see, say that this is just another, another dimension of the you know, historic, I mean, you know, 10,000 years of Western of history, oppression of women. The separation of church and state, however, had tenets to... Yeah, yeah um, you're right. Mary, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. I got to run, but thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Treason and Betrayal, The Rise and Fall of Individual One by Kenneth Ford McCallion. This is from the prologue. It was a gray, overcast day in Washington on January 20th, 2017, the day that Donald J. Trump was sworn in as 45th president of the United States. The weather matched the mood of the majority of Americans who had voted for Hillary Clinton, but whose candidate was denied the election as a result of an anachronistic electoral college system a lackluster Clinton campaign that had ignored key battleground states such as Michigan and Wisconsin, and of course substantial help from the Russians. But the most significant assault on American democracy did not result from the illegal hacking and cyber attacks by Russian agents on our electoral system and social media. Rather, it came from Donald Trump's full-scale assault on American ideals and values, which had long been this country's most powerful weapon in its arsenal of democracy. In his grim inauguration speech, Trump basically announced the end of American exceptionalism, the hallowed concept and conviction that the United States has a special mission and place in history. Instead of extolling the virtues of our democracy and calling upon its citizens to raise the torch of liberty in every corner of this country and around the world, Trump took the cynical view that the United States was no better or worse than Russia or any other authoritarian country, and that all our government should be doing is to put America first by concentrating on building our country's economic wealth over all other considerations, and by not worrying about other concerns such as human rights or even democratic rights and freedoms around the world. Trump's denouncement of America's commitment to liberty and justice for all was a frontal attack on the guiding principles forming the bedrock of our democracy and America's faith in itself and in its transcendent mission. The Declaration of Independence had been a clarion call that resonated not only on this continent, but around the world, declaring that the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was the cherished goal of all Americans and freedom-loving people the world over. Now, Trump was seeking to extinguish that fire by declaring that America was no longer the beacon of liberty and that every country, especially Russia, should be permitted to do whatever they wanted in their own country and its own sphere of influence. And that if they dismembered neighboring countries or slaughtered their own people who were fighting for greater civil and human rights, that this was of no importance to the United States. In other words, Trump was articulating precisely what Putin and others in the Kremlin wanted to hear, which is that Trump would give them the green light to rebuild the Russian empire without fear of opposition or retaliation by the U.S. In doing so, Trump was demonstrating that he was a traitor to the traditional American democratic ideals. The enduring concept of American exceptionalism dates back to French writer Alexis de Tocqueville's reflections on America in his 1835 work, Democracy in America, where he concluded, quote, the position of the Americas is therefore quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one, end quote. President John F. Kennedy reminded Americans that it was our country's fun fundamental duty to protect human rights at home and around the world. 
He pledged that Americans would bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure that survival and the success of liberty. Ronald Reagan inspired us with his soaring rhetoric about America being a shining city on the hill, a beacon for freedom, hope, and liberty that was and always will be the model and example for all the world. President Obama in April 2009 publicly announced, acknowledged America's, quote, extraordinary role in leading the world toward peace and prosperity, end quote, while cautioning that such a lofty goal could only be achieved through effective partnerships with other countries. He also often reminded us that America is, at its core, a good and caring nation that must work tirelessly in the cause of democracy and human rights all around the world. With Trump, this powerful concept of American exceptionalism, which has been enshrined in our nation's psyche for almost 200 years, was declared to be dead and buried, or so Donald Trump and his enablers would like us to believe. In the immortal words of Stephen Colbert, Trump, in his easily forgettable inaugural speech, basically compared America to a dumpster fire. America's longstanding mission to preserve and protect the causes of democracy, freedom, and human rights around the world had, according to Trump, virtually devastated the country. Treason and Betrayal is the book. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.